Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post Doom. Regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. In this conversation, recorded in August of 2019, I'm joined by Carolyn Baker. If you're not already familiar with Carolyn, definitely check out my post-doom conversation with her. She's extraordinary. And together we have a conversation with our colleague, Jennifer Hines. Jennifer is one of the world's experts on methane and other large-scale challenges that we face. We've titled this A Grand Rite of Passage. It's about our waking up. There are two previews. Preview one. As people wake up, the first thing that they're going to do is, well, you know, you go through the five stages of grief and all that, but there's a lot of internal violence in it, and there's a lot of anger in it, and there's a lot of bargaining, and there's a lot of double dealing, and all our human shadow comes into play as we try and keep this knowledge at bay. But in the end, it doesn't matter. It's, it doesn't matter what we believe because the knowledge itself doesn't care. It is the situation and it's irrevocable and it's marching forward. And you can either kind of wake up and figure out how to process this information or you can stay asleep. And I don't think there's anything wrong with staying asleep either. You know, I mean, honestly, I, I, I think I would always choose to wake up. But, you know, there's some good things to be said about staying asleep. <laughs> Preview two. I mean, this is a grand metamorphosis. This is the grand rite of passage. It's a personal rite of passage. I think humanity at large will kind of experience it, you know, in general. But this is a very personal rite of passage where we have to look our own mortality in the face, the doom of everything on earth in the face, and walk through that doorway and come out the other side and we will become deeper we will be become more generous we will become less quick to anger we will become more patient because we will become bigger beings consciously the conversation begins Jennifer, it's a delight to have you uh, here. I really enjoyed the sort of pre-call that we had a couple of weeks ago. And as you know, this, this post-doom conversation series is really inviting people to share their personal story, their experience, uh, and their feelings of how you went from expectation and an assumption that things were getting better and better and progress and all this. And then that shifted and sometimes dramatically, sometimes slowly. I have already invited Carolyn Baker. This will be the first call that we've uh, co-hosted. Um, so she'll be taking the lead and I'll just be jumping in periodically. That's a little introduction. It's, it's a real, real pleasure to be here. And I'm so excited about our conversation today in this post-Doom conference. Cool. Well, I'm excited too, Jen. Um, I'll call you Jen because that's what I call you in in real life. Quote unquote. Uh, we're both Bolderians, which means we live in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, I've known you, I guess, since about uh, 2014. And maybe we'll go into a little bit of a story of how we met. But um, I, I just want to say, first of all, that I really, really acknowledge and appreciate your work You've done so much with uh, climate change as it affects the Arctic region, and uh, I hope you'll be able to talk about that some. But before we really jump into the, the meat and potatoes, 
sorry vegans, um, <laughs> of, of this, of this uh, conversation. I, I wanted to ask you, you know, we're calling it post-doom conversations, but I wanted to ask you, Jen, um, what name or description best captures for you your sense of a contracting or deteriorating future? You know, everybody kind of describes it differently. I, I'm wondering how you describe it. Well, I, I, I don't know if how exactly I describe it, but I have done a lot over the years and worked on Extinction Radio and a variety of other things. And all the work that I've done in the public over the last five years has convinced me um, irrevocably that we are on a downward spiral and that it's really a time of reflection. So yes, I do believe that we're in the sixth grade extinction. Yes, I do believe that humans will go extinct as to when that happens. I don't have any firm dates on anything. I know humans are incredibly resilient. But I do know that our civilization and our set of living arrangements, such as we know it, um, is going to be changing. And I kind of look at, at this time as kind of that last blush of golden sunset before things really start to crumble, you know, and um, we've always been used to having enough. We've always, especially here in the U.S., most of us have never known hunger. Most of us have never known a time without shelter. Most of us have never known a time when there was not enough especially here in the United States of America, we've always had enough. There's always been abundance ever since the 1950s, post-World War II. But we are in the time of great decline. And every single chart that you can look on since, let's say, take it just since 1950, because that's really when things really started to speed up. Um, from all the sociological aspects, from the climate aspects, from all kinds of aspects, every single chart that you look at, if you put time on the bottom and whatever it is that you're measuring, you put that on the y-axis, they all have the same shape. And the shape is one of exponentiation. And it's kind of snuck up upon us. We didn't know when we were born that our lives were going to be like this. We didn't know that we were going to be walking into and contending with this. This was not part of our description of the world. But we've all awakened to this situation in a variety of ways and we all have personal stories of, of how we came to that great understanding and, and great awakening of our, our great decline. So I don't know if I've really answered your question. But well, you have, and, and you're leading me to the next one beautifully, uh, which is, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your journey, your awakening uh, to this conversation. Mm -hmm. How and when did you wake up to the global predicament? Uh, was it sudden or was it more gradually? Um, and I wonder what triggered your, your worst episodes of sadness and grief and what, if any, spiritual or psychological perspectives or practices have carried you through? And where are you now emotionally? I know those are a lot of questions, but they all have to do with your story. So just, just go into the, answering them in, in any way that you like. Absolutely. Be happy to. For me, it was a gradual awakening, and I started really delving into climate change and Greenland ice loss, probably about 2004, 2005. There wasn't a lot on the internet at that time about the Greenland ice loss, but something in me just kept saying, watch this. And I, I bought a little... Uh, 
cup back in 2006, I think it was. And it was one of those, uh, it was, a, I called it the, the sea level rise global warming cup. You know, when, when you put hot liquid in it, the oh, trans, do you really? Okay. <laughs> well, that actually was quite instrumental in my awakening, believe it or not. And I used to bring that cup with me to all my meetings. That was kind of my coffee cup. And, you know, I worked with a bunch of nerds and geeks and stuff like that. So of course they were all about it. Um, but I've been watching things and actively investigating any information I can get my hands on since probably in earnest, since about 2005. About 2010 and 2011, I really started putting the dots together. And I start, the first thoughts started kind of coalescing in my mind that we might have gone too far and that we actually were on the slippery side of the sl slope. But it was, it took a long time for me to get to that point. And I can remember waking up in the middle of the night, you know, when I was first really starting to come to this realization. And I felt the pulse of the earth, I felt the spirit of the earth, and I felt the earth, Gaia crying out, and I felt kind of a unity, a union with the actual spirit, who is Gaia, that is this life that we live, we live on. And it was then that I really started having panic attacks. Mm. And for a while, because I, it, it hit me so acutely. And for a while, I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I would feel panic, and my heart would be beating, and I would be covered in a sheen of sweat. And I just couldn't, I was trying to contend with the thought, the real, actual, understanding, visceral thought that, that this was all ending and we were starting to see the degradation of our biosphere. Um, in 2012, and that was the year that the Arctic really pulled back. And it was also the year that Greenland experienced 95% melt on its surface in September. Fate had it that I went over to the UK from Denver, Colorado to the UK to attend the Olympics and to go to the closing ceremonies which I did. And it was just one of these things. I, my sister had gotten tickets and so I was able to go and it was a fabulous, amazing time. On the way back, it was a direct flight from the UK all the way to Denver. And usually those, those transatlantic flights that go kind of mid-country don't go all the way up into Greenland. Usually you might go over maybe the tip of Iceland or something like that. But this this trip was different. And um, at the beginning of the journey, the captain came on and told us that we were going to be going over Greenland. And so our whole plane was directed in a more northerly route. And I was so excited. I was just like, oh my God, get to go see Greenland. Because I'd been reading about it. This was 2012. And this was the year that like tractors were getting swept downstream from glaciers that were just washing whole roads and bridges away and all sorts of things like that all in Greenland and so I was really prepped and I was so excited and when we got about um, maybe a hundred miles from Greenland or so I thought there was like a lot of um, kind of like white cap activity. I thought the seas were extremely rough. I couldn't put it together what I was seeing, but of course I can't see white caps at 36,000 feet, you know, <laughs> but I, my, my mind was trying to understand what is all this white stuff you're seeing in the ocean because it was just, but it was too disorganized to be white caps. And then I kept looking at it and then I realized, oh my God, the whole ocean's like white and covered with icebergs. Those are icebergs that I'm looking at. And then we came upon Greenland itself. And the whole east coast of Greenland is very craggy. And it has these savage, very jagged 
gray peaks that just come straight out of the ocean and straight up. And all around these gray peaks, glaciers were flowing and all the glaciers that were dying were like completely melted down and they were all grotty and it just looks so sad. And then the glaciers were just flowing out of the interior of Greenland as fast as possible, leaving these long kind of licorice streaks, you know, as it kind of dragged all the debris along with it, it would create these long streaks. And I was just looking at this stuff and I was like, oh my God, this whole place is going to melt down. This, this whole place is going to melt down. And then for the next, you know, I think it took maybe 45 minutes or an hour, whatever it was that we flew across the southern half of Greenland. It was completely melted. This was the beginning of September 2012. And everything was covered with lakes, with rivers. It was super dirty. All the dirt was condensing. You could see lots of black patches where all that kind of creosote stuff was was condensing in the lakes and the whole thing was just a riot of melt and water and I was watching this absolutely I couldn't tear my eyes away and I started snapping pictures and all sorts of things like that and then I looked around me and uh, this was one of those transatlantic British air flights that where everybody has their own little personal TV in front of them. Every single person, no window shade was open but mine. Every single person on that whole plane was watching 120 channels with nothing on it. And I'm like, wow, what is it? that makes one person really wake up and get excited and that the others are really still asleep. And that's really how I started to look at it. I started to look at it like you've even either woken up and you're starting to process this and it's a never ending process. Once you open your mind to the possibilities that are happening, you begin a process and it never ends the entire rest of your life. Cause it's just like, you can't stop processing this. It just happens every day. But you know, if you haven't quite gotten to that point, you're still watching TV and you're hooked into that and you're not really plugged in. And I realized that I had completely shifted my focus as a human being and I was no longer plugged into the mundane in fact the mundane frustrated me it bored me I didn't want to have anything to do with it all I wanted to do was keep waking up and keep looking and keep seeing what was going on so that trip over Greenland was absolutely pivotal for me and it completely changed my description of the world and it hit me at a deep emotional level and I continued my studies and I just I became a huge giant day of the Arctic News blog spot and lots of other you know either YouTube channels or you know periodical channels that I used to read and things like that and um, it was around that time Carolyn that I met you actually you and I met in 2013 and it was after I read your um, book, Sacred Demise, which is such an amazing book. I encourage everybody to read it, Sacred Demise by Carolyn Baker. And then it was in 2014 that I got an opportunity to actually give a presentation before a tipping points forum that both you and I were involved with, Carolyn. And it was through Corelight. And um, this tipping points forum was supposed to be discussing the tipping points that we were having on planet Earth, right. but it wasn't really serving that pur purpose. And I, I had listened and attended the first couple, and I was kind of disappointed because I had really high expectations and I was going through such an incredible dynamic process. I didn't want anything to waste my time and I felt like it was an unfocused sort of forum and so I called up to to quit and uh, the administrator of the tipping points forum uh, Victoria Moore a dear friend of mine um, 
just said, please don't quit, you know, be part of the solution. Don't just walk away. Just be part of the solution. Let's figure something out. And she was really kind of trying to bribe me. And she said, well, why don't you give a talk on Arctic methane? And so um, I said, fine, I will. And I almost did it in a little bit of a rebellious way because I just was like, fine, you know. And I had about five weeks to prepare. The first two weeks I wasted, the last three weeks I hit the books and I put together a presentation. That presentation was given in the Tipping Points Forum in July of 2014. And it was posted. Um, just a, a few days later, I believe, um, it was just very quietly put on the YouTube site. The Arctic News Blogspot and Sam Karana Forum um, noticed it right away. And uh, long story short, they ended up posting it and running it in the Arctic News Blogspot, which was quite surreal for me because I was an absolute complete unknown. I mean, I had no internet imprint at all, you know, except that I probably existed on LinkedIn or something like that, <laughs> you know? And this thing, Sam Karana posted it, you, Carolyn, ended up publicizing it quite a bit and kind of letting people know it was out there mm -hmm. as did Andrew Harvey uh -huh. and uh, I, I think a couple of other people but net net that went viral and that really was my entree into um, the public forum and having a public voice and then at that point that was five years ago mm -hmm. and then at that point I myself had to decide what did I want to do with this yeah. unexpected newfound fame. And there's a certain <laughs> power to it. You, you got to figure out, well, you can just let it go away and die. And it was kind of an interesting experience or you can build on it. So um, I've been building on it over the last five years and I've become um, a very outspoken um, advocate of um, climate education, climate awareness, um, and, and all the philosophies and, and different processing that that kicks off within you. I wanted to ask you about, uh, you've been a student of Tibetan Buddhism for some time, and how does the emotional, spiritual, uh, how, how is that influencing you as you deal with these daunting realities uh, regarding the Arctic? Yeah, it's a good question, really, because I mean, we're whole question. people, we're whole people, we're not just scientific minds, we're not, you know, uh, we're whole people. And as a longtime student of Tibetan Buddhism, I do believe in reincarnation. Um, that's just my personal belief. I do believe in the continuity of spirit and in evolution of spirit and evolution of consciousness and evolution of awareness. And that actually helps, um, you know, um, some people may may think about that and and I know I get kind of like a little bit of, of kickback sometimes for for holding like hopium type beliefs like this but for me it makes sense and so it's not really it's just part of my my being right so I do look at this in some sense um, from a longer term perspective. Yeah. And I look at this, I try to look at this as a whole spirit, as an eternal being. And we are human beings that are spirits going through a human experience. Right. And I try and walk through the fire with as much grace as I can muster, put it that way. Um, I try to see the bigger picture, the deeper picture of it. Yeah, I want to ask you about that a bit. Um, you know, we're both familiar with Joanna Macy's work, and I'm just wondering if you found the epic of evolution or the universe story that Brian Swim and 
and Thomas Berry talk about. Uh, are any of those things helpful in a post-doom context? Have you delved into historical explanations of the rise and fall of civilizations? I think you have, because I think you've written about it a bit or, or produced about it a bit. So talk about that if you would. Yeah, and, and before you even go there, uh, great question, um, but I, I just wanted to comment very quickly on, on beliefs, because I know sometimes people who have beliefs that are um, deeply soul-nourishing to them or, or uh, inspiring or helpful or whatever, sometimes can feel, in this culture at least, um, in the minority if other people have different beliefs or different experiences or different expectations. And I don't, this is just my personal take, so feel free to reject this, but I don't see beliefs as mapping reality. I don't think beliefs are true or false. Beliefs are either useful and inspiring and empowering or they're not. Uh, beliefs are, I see beliefs as, as uh, not for mapping reality, but for molding behavior. And so that anyone's beliefs that allow them, that wake them up on a day-by-day -day basis to live a better life, to be more generous, more compassionate, more loving, more trusting, um, uh, to, to look at difficulty and, and find a silver lining, I am like a big bow of respect to whatever belief does that for someone. Um, and I'm not interested in um, even arguing or debating or, or even having a conversation about the rightness or the truth of various beliefs. And I say that not just for your benefit, I suspect you know all that and uh, may align with much of it, but I say that for anybody listening to this podcast, anybody listening to this conversation, um, don't let anybody challenge your beliefs on truth grounds and or don't experience it as a challenge if those beliefs serve your life. Because for all of human history, there's been a distinction between practical truth and factual truth. And factual truth is pretty recent, last 500 years or so. It's what science specializes in, but what really saves people's lives, what, what, what promotes personal wholeness, social coherence, and ecological integrity are practical truths. That is things that if you act as if they're true, you experience, you know, right relationship to self, others, and whatever your name or names for primary reality. So I just, I don't want you to be defensive in any way. Your beliefs are, serve you and that's, all that needs to be said. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, thank you um, for, for your edifying remarks, uh, Michael and Carolyn. And beliefs are very important, and it can give you a foundation of strength. And um, also, I don't feel as compressed, right? Because this is an age of destruction and compression as our biosphere and our living situation starts to become less and less and if you just think about it from like that limited system you can feel kind of panic and you can feel a lot of despair and I do feel despair don't get me wrong I feel intense despair that this is happening especially for the animals and especially for the helpless creatures on earth that's the most heartbreaking you know um, and it, it's just like that, that's the thing that really, really bothers me the most. I mean, you know, human beings are, are a varied lot. And I think at our core, we are love. We are pure love. But I think on the way to getting back to that core, we can have a lot of different shadows and different expressions that are less than loving um as we see because our world is just i mean we see what our world is full of our world is full of um war and greed and selfishness but i think in in spite of all that greed and selfishness and destruction and hatred and war and killing and all the bad things that we see going on and on earth i do believe that at the center of every human being we are made of pure love and that is our true nature and so one of the tenets of buddhism is to act with loving kindness towards your fellow human beings and extend them loving kindness and then they in turn 
reflect that loving kindness back to you and you can kind of have that whole thing going on in your society and in your micro society in your dharma ashram or whatever and the same goes for earth you know and it's it's such a, a mixed bag because although we're made of love we see mo so much hatred and selfishness and terror around us so you know that's all part of being human I'm reminded of a quote that uh, I actually have here on my computer that Joanna Macy, uh, a system scientist, Buddhist, inspiration to most of us in this conversation series, I'm quite sure. She said, there's science now to construct the story of the journey that we've made on this earth, the story that connects us with all beings. Right now, we need to remember that story, to harvest it and to taste it, for we are in a hard time, and it's the knowledge of the bigger story that can carry us through. So how has this, how has any kind of big picture been inspiring to you? And um, do you find yourself focusing more on the particulars? Because some people I've asked this question to, they say, well, yeah, I, I appreciate what Thomas Berry and Brian Swim and Miriam McGillis and Joanna Macy and others have done, but I tend to focus more on the particular. So uh, how do you, where do you find inspiration uh, in addition to what you've already been sharing? Well, one thing um, that was kind of surprising is that this internet community has sprung up and it, you, these, these connections that you have with people actually end up translating into they're real people and they have real feelings and it's real friendship um, as far as internet communities go. And um, one thing that's kind of interesting is I've been doing a lot with Environmental Coffee House lately and um, they use uh, the live technology. So, you know, we go on live, you know, we'll comment on some particularly you know things that are happening now articles and things like that and while we're doing that um people will be typing and making comments and it really does provide a sense of community so what we're really seeking in these times of change and destruction and demise is a sense of belonging and a sense of uh not isolation of um of communicating with other people about these important things. And I have found that actually happening in these internet communities. And a lot of them have already translated into real friendships, you know, with visits and things like that. So I think community is very important. I think that we are tribal in nature. I think we love to sit around a campfire and exchange tales of terror or whatever it is. You know, we have like, you know, we sit around the campfire campfire and, and talk you know this is part of our our genes this goes way 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 back to um, how we began as homo sapiens and I think we need community and we need to process and we need to talk about these things because this is too much to really try and bear alone so this is a time of bridging communication and through this communication greater and greater understandings can be shared by a whole group of people and what we end up finding is that we are actually building new webs of awareness and new webs of consciousness that are seeping into the fabric of mundane everyday life mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's great it would not be um complete this conversation for as much you know, as much joy and meaning as we've been talking about um, to to touch the topic of death because we're going through this planetary death. I call it a planetary rite of passage, but it is a rite of passage that, um, you know, leads to death in the collective as well as our individual deaths. And so uh, some of us have found that actually holding impermanence and death as natural um, and necessary is no less sacred, um, you know, than anything else. And that this actually facilitates uh, a post-doom consciousness. Are there ways of thinking about your own mortality and our species mortality that you found helpful or 
do you just not simply think much about it? It doesn't sound like you're ignoring it. It sounds like you do think about it. Oh, yes. I mean, of course, impermanence and um, death are, they go hand in hand with our human existence. And especially as a post-doom individual um, and as a, a person who keeps up, I think of both my personal death and I'm dealing with, you know, people in my life who have already passed and are sick right now. Um, and, you know, you, you hear about people in your community who pass. So death is an advisor. Death is a teacher. Death teaches us to love life. And even though I don't think that death is necessarily the end of consciousness still there's no reason to hurry the process along is there um and it's good to to keep you know you don't want to waste time either this is a very very important lifetime those of us who've been called to wake up are also being called to shepherd this awareness and are also being called um, to participate in a rite of passage of humanity and to be a midwife. So in a certain way, I feel called and I feel called to shepherd this awareness and to birth it because it's going to, it's, it's you know, the echo chamber has, has well ruptured at this point and this knowledge is into the public sector at this point and there's going to be a lot of panic as people wake up the first thing that they're going to do is it well you know you go through the five stages of grief and all that but there's a lot of internal violence in it and there's a lot of anger in it and there's a lot of bargaining and there's a lot of double dealing and all our human shadow comes into play as we try and keep this knowledge at bay but in the end it doesn't matter it's it doesn't matter what we believe because the knowledge itself doesn't care it is the situation and it's irrevocable and it's marching forward and you can either kind of wake up and figure out how to process this information or you can stay asleep and I don't think there's anything wrong with staying asleep either you know I mean honestly I, I, I think I would always choose to wake up but you know there's some good things to be said about staying asleep <laughs> I, I completely agree and it's interesting because it, just in the last few years uh, I wasn't this way up until maybe two years ago I was always trying to convince people because I, I think I had somewhere in the back of my head that if we just convinced enough people to do the right thing, then, you know, I wasn't exactly sure what good could be done, but I figured some good could be done. And I still think that can happen on local scales to some degree. But I, uh, I also, um, uh, Stephen Jenkinson, I had a conversation with him actually earlier today uh, as part of this post-Doom series, Barbara Cecil and I. And uh, you know, he's got a quote that I've used in some of my evening programs. He said, awakening in our age is to awaken with a sob. And that, that denial is a normal, natural, healthy, and at times necessary psychological mechanism. And if somebody, there's this old uh, story, uh, oh gosh, I don't remember, from decades ago, back when I was an evangelical fundamentalist Christian, uh, there was a story of a missionary that went to some, you know, way out place where, you know, nobody had, you know, been contacted before. And the missionary is telling them about Jesus and that they, they need to believe in Jesus because otherwise they're going to go to hell. Um, uh, and then one of them asked, well, if you'd have never come here and told us about, you know, this, uh, would we have gone to hell? Well, no, you, you wouldn't have. Well, why did you tell us? <laughs> you know, and it's like, if if climate if we're actually dealing with abrupt climate change, like if we're in if we're in a time of self-reinforcing feedbacks that are already out of our control, um, and there's nothing major that anybody can do, um, 
I've lost the passion to, to wake everybody up in my life. It's like, I, I'm honest, I'm authentic. I share with them what I believe, but I often do it in a lighthearted way now. Um, you know, when somebody's talking about what's going to happen 20 or 30 years from now, I'll sometimes whisper over to Connie, sometimes loud enough that they can hear, well, unless we've all starved to death or boiled like lobsters by then. <laughs> but they're keeping a little dark humor and also just trusting time that I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have that evangelical zeal to have everybody believe what I know about climate change and, and overshoot uh, and, you know, ecological devastation and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I'm going on. And also but, the judgment, uh, the judgment yeah. of, well, you've got your head in the sand. So, you know, what's wrong with you and why don't you wake up and blah, blah. And I think that's a complete waste of time and energy. And, you know, it's a way, I believe, of staving off our grief, which is the next question I wanted to ask Jennifer about. Um, because in coming to terms with these cascading problems of overshoot and resource depletion and climate breakdown and so on, um, I'm sure that you encountered stages of grieving that that went beyond mere acceptance. And like, what is acceptance? You know, it's not, oh, wow, I accept this. Uh, so I'm wondering what has opened up for you positively on the other side? Well, I think one thing that happens is, and I'd like to talk about post-doom awareness and post-doom consciousness. You have a couple of stages you initially go through when you accept that this is happening. After you've gone through all of the bargaining and all of the denial and all of the anger and all of, you know, all of that stuff where you're going, yeah, 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 yeah. Then at some point you have to surrender and you have to let it in. And that's overwhelming and that's crushing. And you do go through a crushing defeat where you're destroyed. You basically have to kind of like admit that this whole thing is falling apart. This beautiful, glorious earth and its biosphere are dying in front of your eyes and abrupt climate change events are taking place. But then after you get through the depression and all of that at the other side of it there's kind of peace um because you realize there's a limited amount that you can do as a person i mean really you know there at this point it's so far advanced um you know you do what you can in your own personal sphere you try and affect the people positively that you run into in your own personal sphere if you have a megaphone attached to your being like some of us do and you're in a public speaking you try and bring understanding and peace i always try i don't try and whip people into a terror i try and provide information but then i also try to provide a sense of, I don't know what, um, you know, like communication so people aren't so panicked, you know. And that's kind of what you come to. It's kind of a post-doom awareness. It's sort of a deeper acceptance and it's still very depressing. I mean, you know, there, as, as, as all of you are, I mean, very engaged in the news and seeing all the things that are happening, happening from a species extinction standpoint, seeing all the abrupt climate change events, watching the Arctic melt before our very eyes so much in 2019 more than it it ever has before but there's a sense of kind of like at least you're doing kind of like what you can given this situation you know you're doing what you can and you're giving of yourself and you're playing your role is what i would say you know, a friend of mine said to me uh, not too long ago, in fact, it was a Friday night talk that I gave that you attended, uh, Jan, back in, in June. Um, my friend Michael said, um, there are some things that it's absolutely too late for, and there are other things it's not too late for at all. Amen. You know, 
um, yeah, big amen. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, and I really appreciate everything you shared, Jennifer. Um, but I did a program, a five-day retreat at Ghost Ranch, New Mexico. The thing I wanted to draw attention to was the fun time that I had had at the Council of All Beings. There was a Council of All Beings down by the fire. You talk about, you know, we all love fires and, and um, in, the, in the late evening. And I was inspired to speak on behalf, and I had never done this before. I had never even thought this before, to speak on behalf of the alligators and the reptiles. Because, you know, one of the things I, I did happen to know is that for probably two-thirds of Earth's history in terms of, of uh, multicellular life, Earth was a lot hotter than it is now, and it was really good for the reptiles and not so great for cold-blooded animals, but it was really great for cold-blooded animals. So I spoke as the alligator, and I said, I know you you mammals, you know, you're looking at this, and this looks like the end of the world as you know it. And, and it really kind of is. But I'll tell you, from the perspective of we cold-blooded types, oh, man, are we grateful? Because things have been getting cooler for 50 million years or so. And we didn't know how to keep things back up so that we would like it. And you dug all up this carbon and put it up there. And I mean, we, we alligators were already migrating toward the poles. I mean, we call it the great gator migration. So I know it's going to be a tough time for you. I wish I could say with honesty that I really feel what you feel, but I don't, I'm a reptile, but man, am I grateful. <laughs> and people, people loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. So uh, I have one last question for sure. you, Dan. Um, in coming to terms with all of these cascading problems like overshoot and resource depletion and, and climate breakdown, um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more, because uh, uh, I did ask you this, but a little bit more on, on the process of grief. What's opened up for you through grieving? What has really kind of facilitated the grieving process, because there's a lot to grieve for, was attending a couple of these grief ceremonies. And um, I did attend a couple of your workshops, Carolyn, and there was one that we did a couple of years ago where there was a lot of crying and there was a lot of kind of processing. And at the other end of grieving, there's a deep peace and there's almost a deep satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So grief doesn't always stay grief. Everything has its opposite. So behind grief, there's joy. Behind anger, there's peace. You know, there's, there's like the opposite of everything within everything. Mm -hmm. And so you can always get to the opposite energy just by walking through the door, by going deepest into grief, yeah. you end up walking into joy and peace. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm really glad you shared that, uh, Jen, because uh, uh, interestingly enough, when we left Ghost Ranch, New Mexico, directly on our way here, we stopped in Durango. And it just so happened, some dear friends, uh, that, we, that they noticed that at the local Buddhist Sangha, there was going to be a one-day work that reconnects Joanna Macy workshop, not Joanna herself facilitating it, but another woman who trained with Joanna. And I mean, I've spent probably 15 days with Joanna Macy over the years, mostly in that late 80s and 90s, and Connie hadn't. And so we both did this one-day work that reconnects work, which was all about, you know, or partly, largely about really allowing ourselves to feel our love, which grief, you wouldn't have grief if you didn't love. And so that love that undergirds grief, and then, as you said, the joy that comes on the other side when we acknowledge our radical interconnectedness with all species, with the body of life as our larger body, our larger self. Um, and, um, and as you say, the sort of if you allow yourself to go through the door, Paul Traferka spoke of the post-doom doorway. I was thinking he was the first one. Um, and there's a whole there's a whole universe that opens up of possibility. I, I now think of doom as the midpoint between denial and regeneration, or you could say between denial and death or even extinction, because ultimately everything will regenerate. Earth's, Earth, the Gaia will regenerate. 
Um, and that the midpoint we, we avoided, as you said so brilliantly, uh, in terms of the, the stages of grief, because over that door of doom, or the door, you know, it says W-A-S-F. And we experience that as we are so fucked. Yeah, yeah. But then if you allow yourself to go through the door, then you notice these spheres of gratitude. And you look back and it still says WASF, but now it says, now you interpret it as we are so fortunate to be alive at this time and conscious and aware and be able to do the good work that we can do without thinking that it's going to save the world because it's not, but we can make all choices. So um, anything that, anything else that you would like to say in sort of summing up or. uh, Yes. I mean, this is a grand metamorphosis. This is the grand rite of passage. It's a personal rite of passage. I think humanity at large will kind of experience it, you know, in general, but this is a very personal rite of passage where we have to look our own mortality in the face, the doom of everything on earth in the face, and walk through that doorway and come out the other side and we will become deeper we will become more generous we will become less quick to anger we will become more patient because we will become bigger beings consciously and i think that this is really the gift is it's a gift of personal awareness awakening and enlightenment that brings us to a sense of peace, generosity, and bigness. Yeah. Wow, I'm glad you phrased it that way because I'm hoping, my prayer, my hope, my intention, my wish for this series of conversations and this whole post-doom, whatever it is, is that those people who have really been on the forefront, and and now many of them consider themselves doomers, but the doomer crowd, the doomer world, can be pretty cynical and pretty hardened and pretty whatever for good understandable reasons. And I think that I want to get good, and I'm hoping this series is is an effective um, bridge uh, so that more and more people who really get the WASF, but haven't come to get interpreted as we are so fortunate, um, are able to find a way into what Paul Traferka calls finding the gift, that into that spiritual, generous, compassionate, um, peaceful place on the other side of terror and anger and all the rest of that. Mm-hmm. Jen, I really want to thank you for this conversation and your wisdom and your research, all that you're doing in in the world and i'd like to just kind of finish this conversation with a little mary oliver that sounds great to me what we've been talking about when she says we shake with grief we shake with joy what a time these two have housed as they are in the same body (laughs) that's Mm. great and thank you so much for allowing this space and this communication to take place with no obstacles and in an environment of support and growth. And I think that this is the gift that we can all offer each other, is to support each other so we can all grow into our own awareness. Amen. This has been a post-Doom conversation. For more audios and videos, of post-doom conversations and other resources along these lines, go to postdoom.com.